I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. Why, you stuck up, half-witted, scruffy-looking nerf herder. 2016 has been the worst. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon, on the Central Coast at 91.7 FM KYAQ, in Cottage Grove on 106.7 FM KSO, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93.1 FM WLRI, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, The Voice of Maui, in Columbus, Ohio, on KGRN 94.1 FM, in Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP, in Bellingham, Washington, on KZAX 94.9 FM, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing the globe five days a week. Usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, but today, once again, you've got me, Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com. And boy, do we have a busy show lined up for you today. But first, we've got to begin by echoing John Oliver's sentiments. 2016 has been the f- worst. Ah, 2016. It wasn't bad enough that Christmas brought with it the death of George Michael. But now it takes the force from Carrie Fisher, too. It's not fair, I tell you. It's just not fair. Then again, this is the year of unfair things, including Dump winning the White House. And again, he may have won the electoral vote, but he lost the popular vote by almost three million votes. So to ensure that that doesn't happen again, we need real progressives to step up and run for office. Sadly, the Democratic Party is in such a mess that it needs to get its house in order before worrying about candidates to take on the GOP in 2018. So let's start there. Joining us on the line now is Melissa Byrne. She is an organizer. She is an activist. And she is now uh, throwing her hat in the ring. But you're not running for uh, Congress or for a local school board seat, Melissa. You've, uh, you're, you've thrown your hat in the ring for one of the vice chair positions at the DNC. Now, we've been hearing so much about the race for DNC chair with a battle getting heated between Keith Ellison and, and Tom Perez. Um, but uh, are, are, now I think there are four vice chair positions. Do, do I have that right, Melissa? Yes, there's four vice chairs. There's a first vice chair who serves as the vice chair for community engagement and voter registration. And then there are three other vice chairs. And so, so now this is not something that, for instance, I can't go and vote for you to be a vice chair of the DNC, right? Who votes on this? 
I, I wish you and your, your viewers uh, or, or listeners could vote for me. I wish um, could they too. can if they happen to be a DNC member. There, there's about 447 people who are allowed to vote in this election. Hmm. Um, Wait a minute. Like the 446. Yeah, I was just going to say that's about the number of super delegates. So are all those DNC members super delegates? Um, I think a, a good portion of them are, um, although they're supposed to be doing some reforms about superdelegates, so who knows what it'll be like um, in the 2020 primary. Yeah, or, uh, there were supposed to be some, and to think that was one of the concessions that Bernie Sanders won during the um, uh, the platform battle, but we'll, we'll yep. get to that yeah, in a moment. Yeah, so so we'll get to that in, a, in just a moment. Um, uh, but, but Melissa Burns, so d- tell us a bit about your background and what made you decide to uh, run for one of these seats. Yeah, well, thank you. My background is I am an organizer. I have worked on a a plethora of issues um, since I was in high school and college, working to end sweatshops, uh, working to stop the Iraq war. My friends and I were were amongst the first people arrested protesting the Iraq war back in 2002. I've worked on uh, political campaigns. I've worked on issue campaigns, working to stop cuts to Social Security. I helped really push forward the idea that we can deal with student loan debt and make college free, and make, I helped make that a top issue. And I had the privilege to work on Bernie Sanders' campaign. Yes. Now, you, you worked um, uh, on his, in, in his New Hampshire campaign office, right? Do I have that right? I, I started there. So uh-huh. I was the, the director for the digital program in New Hampshire, and after we won New Hampshire by 22.4%, mm-hmm. I went on and joined the national digital team. Great. And then after, well, after the convention, you, you did segue into the Clinton campaign, right? And tried to get her elected? Um, so, yes. Um, not directly on the campaign. I was hired by MUMON. And oh, I okay. ran their program in two states. I ran their um, United Against State campaign in Pennsylvania and New Hampshire. And we were able to pull off a squeaker of a victory in New Hampshire uh, for both Senator Maggie Hassan and for Hillary. Uh, Pennsylvania um, is part of that whole cluster mess of Rust Belt areas. So unfortunately, that was less exciting. But being in Pennsylvania, I live in Philadelphia, has made me even more committed to how do we win in hard areas and not just give up. So what happened, do you think, in Pennsylvania? I, Pennsylvania, this is the first time they've gone for a Republican presidential candidate, uh, I believe, in my lifetime, and I've been around longer than you. Um, what, do you know? I mean, can you, could you feel what was going on, or was this a shocker to you too? Um, it wasn't a shock. I mean, it was definitely within the realm of possible. And it's one of those things where I think that people mis- under- misread the vibes and I don't, nothing was intentional. I just think like it was just a mess of a message plus Comey plus all of the messaging from the leaks. Trump ran ads in Philadelphia using messaging from that was found illegally through the, the WikiLeaks hack. Mm. So all of that was just kind of a mess and it just led to the perfect storm of like, an extra few votes in a, yep. a ton of different areas. Uh, yeah, and here we are now in the aftermath. Is that when you decided to run to be a vice chair at the DNC after the election? 
Yes, it was after the election. Um, I wasn't quite familiar with the process of being able to how to run. I saw a couple of guys that were in my age cohort threw their hats into the rings because men always seem to have the ability to throw their hats in the ring. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was excited about Keith Ellison. And I was in this conversation where a guy was telling all the women who were supporting Keith Ellison that you know, they should really be putting forward a woman to run and that women really need women to run in order to be inspired. And I was just aghast that, like, it was, like, the replay of, like, the worst part of the primaries with a guy telling women who were supporting a progressive candidate that they are, like, basically self-hating feminists for supporting a guy and not a woman. So then I was like, well, how about I run? I'll run for vice chair, and that'll shut everybody up. And of course, the guy that was telling all of us women who were supporting Keith that we were self-hating feminists hasn't bothered to congratulate me on running. <laughs> of course because, not. Right. right. You know, that's how, that's how that works. But the upside is is that I'm running, and I have never been so excited about anything. Well, Bernie, I've been really excited about Bernie, but aside from Bernie, um, it's been a great process to put myself forward and out front. I have had incredible conversations people are donating money to me, which is just all of us. Like when you're the, it's so very different to be the organizer supporting a candidate or cause than to be the person who's out front. So I'm like learning all of this for the first time. as what it's like when you're out front and you're the, you are the principal as oh. opposed to supporting a principal. I, I'll bet. Well, and, you, you do have a fundraising yeah. page um, up and, and I will post a link to it. It's at actionnetwork.org, but you got to go through the whole thing. You also have a, a nice post up on Medium explaining why you're running. I will post links to both of them on my blog at nicolesandler.com. I'll also have it up at uh, the Brad blog uh, tonight, too, at bradblog.com. Great. So um, uh, lots of ways people can read more about you and make a donation. So what is the process from here? I mean, how does it work, and when, when does the voting happen? Sure. So there's a couple parts of the process. The first is just, is making the argument. And so for me, the argument that I'm re- I'm making for running for um, one of the DNC vice chair slots is that it's time for the DNC to have a real organizer in there, not just people that have done strictly Democratic Party work. We're at an era of social movements, and so you need somebody who has the background of social movements and who also works to be able to see things intersectionally. That, yes, it's about racism, it's about classism, it's about sexism, it's about homophobia, it's about all of these problems, and that you have to look at them all as being interconnected in order to be able to build power and to win. And that's like the core of, of what I'm doing, and that you can't divorce what we want to win from how we win. Um, so many times in the Democratic Party, the people that know, know how to win races aren't really supposed to have like the strong political values or connected to the issues. And the best legacy of the Bernie campaign is that you can talk about that your operatives should know about expanding social security, should know about free college, should know about comprehensive immigration reform, and that our issues should guide all the organizing that we do. In terms of the formal process, there are four forums. So I hope that your um, your listeners who are in Phoenix, Detroit, Houston, and Baltimore areas all come out to the forums, and they are. I will add them to my page. Okay. on Medium, so people can, 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 can read about them. And then there is, and so that, that's through um, January and early February. And then February 22nd to the 26th, around that time, is the National Winter Meeting of the DNC, which is open to the public. 
so you don't have to be, be a member to go. Um, so you can go, you can listen to all of the candidates. This is where we do all the elections for DNC, for, for chair, mm. treasurer, secretary. There's a, several other positions than just the three for the four for vice chair. And then there'll be an election. So from between now and then, I have to really do the hard work of organizing, which is calling all the DNC members, emailing them, talking to them, convincing them that I am the best person how many, for this role. How many candidates are there? Um, right now, I know of three to four other candidates. There isn't one comprehensive listing yet, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the forum, at the forums, being able to meet everybody. And the other ones that I know of that are running, they're great. And we're very lucky to have really good candidates running. Uh, but I'm the only one that comes out of a really strong social media background. Yeah, and, 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 and in terms of the current crowd, I don't even know who's in there anymore, obviously, in the DNC, and is in a bit of an upheaval. Um, we do know that Tulsi Gabbard, Con- Congresswoman Gul- Tulsi Gabbard of uh, Hawaii, was one of the DNC vice chairs who famously quit so she could endorse Bernie Sanders and go out on the road with him. Um, but we don't really hear about who the other vice chairs are. In fact, if not for the newsworthiness of what Tulsi Gabbard did, we probably wouldn't have known about them. Who's in there now? And are they are they also gone? Were they, you know, thrown out along with Debbie Wasserman Schultz? Or are there people currently in those roles? There's people currently in their roles. Um, traditionally, what happens is when, when you have a Democratic president, the president's team picks the people that they want as party leadership. Right. So then when there isn't a Democratic president, it's, uh, it opens up a window for these races uh, to be a bit competitive. And I believe that only Representative Grace Meng is running for re-election. Hmm. Okay. And she is from um, New York City. Okay. And then as far as the chair goes, I mean, is it still, it's obviously Keith Ellison, who we talked about, and uh, current Obama administration labor secretary, Tom Perez, who I believe is President Obama's choice. He's the more establishment candidate. Or is it just the two of them? I know Howard Dean, you know, announced and then he dropped out. um, New Hampshire um, Democratic Chairman Ray Buckley oh, right. is in the mix. So uh-huh. South Carolina Democratic Chairman Jamie Harrison, uh, the chair of the Idaho Democratic Party. Um, I am blanking on her name, so I feel horrible. She's also in the mix, and I, I think one or two other people might get in the mix. I obviously, um, I firmly support Keith, but again, even with all of the different candidates for chair, um, they're all really good people who are, you know, who do have, like, the best interests of the party at heart, but not all of them come from a movement background like Keith does. And, like, right now, we are really in this time where we need to be able to speak movement talk to be able to build a huge Democratic Party movement. Yeah, well, you know, look, the Democratic Party is in in trouble right now, and I have this article from USA Today that I, from last Thursday that I'd been sitting here on my desk because it, it, it sort of blew my mind. And the headline reads, Dems have a front runner for 2020 race. And I start reading it. And um, well, the front runner is someone entirely new. <laughs> That's it. It's literally not an identifiable person, just quote, Someone entirely new. That's what people mm-hmm. want. That's the front runner. Someone entirely new. Somebody that we don't know. And I firmly believe that if the Democratic Party has any chance at all 
of turning things around that they need to embrace new energy, younger people, new blood, new talent, organizers, people like you who've been out in the field, who've been working, who are, you know, you've been doing the work, not more of the same. And, um, you know, Howie Klein is, uh, is usually on with me on Thursdays, uh, and he and I have had this discussion so many times that it's it's sort of, you know, it's like nothing against old people. And look, it all depends on the individual. I'm a big Bernie Sanders supporter, still I am. But the, the people that we have in charge, say, of the House Democratic Caucus, it's the same old, same old, and I mean old. I, the, and it seems like they're not opening it up to new people, to younger people, new blood, new energy. And Melissa Byrne, it seems like that's one of the big things that you could bring to this. Yes, I definitely bring the new energy, but I also I bring a work ethic yep. and the ability to organize across across spectrums and groups. And um, I think that's something that's missing. I think a lot of times when people get into party leadership or have come up the ranks through um, more of an insider track, they lose the ability to speak freely. They lose the ability to really connect with people because they start becoming afraid. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's great about being an organizer is you can't be fearful if you're an organizer. Like when you're organizing a march and an action and you have cops batons coming at you, you can't be fearful. You have to be able to like stare straight into the into what's in front of you and lead. And that's what I do with an organizer. And so I bring the ability to not be afraid to be able to stare into what we have to get done and then work with folks to get the work done. Great. And right now we have to think about winning. We need to win the New Jersey governorship. We need to protect the Virginia governorship. And from there, we need to really have a plan for 2018. <laughs> and it can't just, and it also goes to candidate recruitment. Oh, yeah. We just can't have the requirement for candidate recruitment to be can you self-fund. It needs to be, can you inspire? Will you actually work for progressive policies? Will you build and grow? And I think that there's many people that, that will do that and will do the work. And we can get it done, but it requires the ability to overcome the inertia that sets in when you hang out in D.C. for a long time. Oh, yeah. So, so Melissa Byrne is the potential new DNC vice chair. What do you say to all those people out there who were so invested in this election, who really you know, it worked hard for Bernie. And now they're, they're just, they saw what the DNC did to him. They're kind of fed up. Um, and, and I, I still, I saw something on Twitter this morning from someone saying we need a new party, uh, cause I'm done with the Democrats. What do you say to those people, um, to bring them back in? Well, I see that Donald Trump wants you to be done with the Democrats. The whole point of the disinformation campaign that was run against the Democrats was so you would sit down, so you would, like, get fed up and not get involved because they saw the power that we were building. And, yes, I mean, it was awful what some of the people did within the party, and Debbie Wasserman Schultz should have been fired from her job, like, years before the primary even began. Um, But that's just part, like, you know, like, that's not the worst thing that happened. So I think that you don't throw away our future because people are frustrated about how a few awful people behave. The way I always say is like 99% of any institution is awesome. And there's always that 1% that's problematic. And I think that the 1% of the DNC that was incredibly problematic, they, they're no longer there. They were like fired. They were removed from their jobs. And now we have a chance to rebuild it. All of the staff resigned um, 
for when a new chair comes in. So we have a chance to really rebuild the party, rebuild the leadership, rebuild the staffing from the bottom up. And it's our, we don't just give up. Like we're, we fight hard. And the idea of like building a new party, while on paper, that sounds really cool. The actual infrastructure that's involved in terms of like, there are so many races around the country. There are like, you know, there's 50 states. There's all the territories. There's all of these local regional, mm-hmm. statewide, mm-hmm. federal races. So you don't just you don't just like start from scratch. You take an infrastructure that's already there and you make it better. And we really can make the Democratic Party a lot better if people get involved. You know, it was never about Bernie. It was always about what we can build together. Absolutely. And that's more important now. So how can people help you? Obviously, we regular uh, mere mortals can't vote in the DNC uh, elections. How, how do we help you now? Sure. Well, you can help me by tweeting about me, by getting people excited about the idea of having an organizer in leadership, uh, chipping in so I can afford, you know, hotels and travel expenses and print out some signs and materials uh, for the campaign. And then if they happen to be friends with a member, like say something nice, reach out, email your Democratic Party executive director for your state, email the chair for your state, and say a few good words about why we need this and why that would get you excited. Because I also want to hear from you. I want to know like what you want out of the DNC. Like my Twitter handle is at M-C-B-Y-R-N-E. Tweet me and tell me what you want out of the DNC. And if I don't agree with you, I'll tell you. My view is that I'm not, we're not always going to agree, but I'll be honest when I don't agree with you and we can have a conversation. Absolutely. And that's what we need to start doing. Melissa Byrne at MCBYRNE on Twitter. And I'll post the link to uh, the piece up on Medium, which has all the other information about. Uh, your platform, basically, and uh, where, you know, people can help you out monetarily as well. Melissa Byrne, thank you so much. Thank you for throwing your hat in the ring and stepping up and running because we need more people to do that as well. And it's great talking with you. I'm so glad. Yeah, thank you for having me. Melissa Byrne, running for one of four vice chair positions at the DNC. Visit bradblog.com for the link to find out more about Melissa's campaign. Still to come on this edition of the broadcast, energy journalist Antonia Yuhas on one of President Obama's best parting gifts. And a reminder of who will inhabit the White House beginning in a few short weeks. That's coming up next on What's News. I'm Nicole Sandler, guest hosting today's broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help out however you can. That's bradblog.com donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. A long December there's reason to believe maybe this year will be better than the last 2017 had best be better than the last because i don't think it could get much worse and i can explain why in one word trump 
I'm Nicole Sandler, guest hosting today's broadcast. And since the week between Christmas and New Year's is always slow, I thought that in today's What's News segment, I'd remind you of some of the things our president-elect has actually said. Some things to remember as we embark on what's sure to be a difficult few years ahead. Here we go. It's time for another edition of What's News. Since there's not much actual news this time of the year, we're looking back on the year most of us would rather forget. But we can't. 2016 will be remembered as the year that the USA lost its collective mind and elected Donald Trump as our 45th president. So, we bring you this don't forget, don't normalize, he really said these things edition of What's News. I'm Nicole Sandler for the Progressive Voices Network. I love the poorly educated. That's what the man said. So won't you listen to what the man said? The answer is that there has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah. There has to be some form. Ten cents, ten years, I don't know. That I don't know. If she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. But, but I'll tell you what, that will be a horrible day. That's what the man said. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Oh, I love the old days, you know? You know what I hate? There's a guy totally disruptive, throwing punches. We're not allowed to punch back anymore. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. I'd like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. No good, you're no good, you're no good. Baby, you're no good. If Hillary puts her people on the Supreme Court, okay? Like, who knows? Elizabeth Warren maybe will go. Maybe. Pocahontas, Pocahontas. And those commercials were so false, just like Hillary's commercials. They're so false. They're so false. Like she's got the one with blood coming out of her eyes. And I meant her nose. Or her ears. Or her mouth. But these people are perverted. I said, in New Jersey, they were dancing. Those people that knocked down the World Trade Center, most likely under the Trump policy, wouldn't have been here. But the reporter, all of a sudden, remembered it totally different from his story. And he was groveling. I won't make the motions because if I do, they'll say something, you know. Nobody's better to people with disabilities than me. I spend millions and millions of dollars on buildings taking care of people with disabilities. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. We're gonna make our country rich again. We're gonna make our country great again. And we need the rich in order to make the great, I'm sorry to tell you. I look at Rubio, he's a lightweight. He's a lightweight. Everyone says, oh, Rubio, he's the next Reagan. I mean, my hair is better than his hair, that I can tell. Yeah. And I'm a little older. I'm a little old. He's not a war hero. He's a war hero. He's a war Five hero. Five and a half years. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. His message is being a loud-mouthed 
basically. I was very viciously attacked, as you know, on the stage, and I was surprised to see it. And so all I did, I have great honor and great uh, feeling for his son, Mr. Khan's son. But, and, you know, as far as I'm concerned, he's a hero. But horrible things were said about me. I think it was, frankly, very tough. So all I did is respond, and I will always respond. Oh, uh, look at my African-American over here. Look at him. Are you the greatest? He would have been a hero. But he made a deal with the devil. She's the devil. He made a deal with the devil. It's true. I love you. 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 I love you all. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love the poorly educated. So Kanye West, I love him because he loves Trump. I don't know who the hell's in this room, but whoever it is, I love him. I love the old days. I love free trade. I love my company. I love building buildings. I love what I'm doing. L is for the way you look at me. I love hopping around. O is for the only one I see. I love NASCAR. V is very, very I love your potatoes. extraordinary. E is even more than any one that you adore can love. I love that sign. I love is to bring my people out. I, I love helping people. I love Howie Kurtz. I love Sheriff Joe. I love my father. I love my kids. I love these people. I love the New York Times. It's great. I love tough people. I love my protesters. I love the women. I cherish women. They love me and I love them. We love people that faint. I love the way they twist and turn. I love my life. I love the military. I love great generals. I love the vets. I love the wounded warriors. I love China. China's great. I love Mexico. I love the Mexican people. I love the Hispanics. I love the Saudis. I love Israel. I love the evangelicals. I love the Mormons. I love the Muslims. I think they're great people. I love South Carolina. <laughs> I love Iowa. I love Nashville. I love you, Ohio. I love Idaho. I love Nevada. I love New Hampshire. I love Florida. I love Georgia. I do love Virginia. I love you people. Yeah, he really said all that and more. But that's all we have time for in today's special edition of What's News. For The Nicole Sandler Show, I'm Nicole Sandler on the Progressive Voices Network. It's time for another quick timeout. We'll return with some good news, a parting shot from the Obama administration, next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your trusty guest host on the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. We're back. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, guest hosting today's broadcast. Since the Green News Report is also off this week, I thought we'd combine the best of both worlds. Although we really have no idea what's in store for us, Environmentally speaking, in the Trump era, we do know that President Obama left us and the new administration with a wonderful parting gift. I think you and I will like it a whole lot more than the Trump crowd will. On the line with us is Antonia Juhaz. Well, she's a, a journalist who writes about 
the environment. Are you what? What is your official title? You're you're an energy analyst, uh, author, journalist. Is there an all-encompassing title we give to you, or it's all of those things? I'm a writer and investigative journalist, and I focus on energy, but in particular, all things oil. All things oil, which brings me to the main reason for my call today. And, you know, it's every time, you know, they they come so rarely, little nuggets of good news. And so when something good happens, I want to shine a spotlight on it. Um, The headline and a piece in Rolling Stone magazine reads, Obama enacts offshore drilling ban designed to be Trump-proof. You wrote this. Uh, is this really going to be Trump-proof? Because I know he's doing a lot of things, like in these last couple of months, that I kind of wish he had done a few years ago, um, but that we worry that the minute Trump gets in, he's going to undo. This one he can't? Um, yeah, I mean, so President Obama has certainly been very active in the last few weeks, and I think history may prove that this may be one of the most um, activist ends to a presidency that we've seen with the number of policies that uh, is putting into place. One reason being that he is, I think, um, understandably very concerned about the Trump administration and what's going to happen within the Trump administration. So he's trying to put in place as many, that is a lot of peace, as many policies as he can um, to head off uh, what are likely really disastrous changes uh, by the Trump administration. So this decision, which happened literally a month to the day before Trump uh, takes over on January 20th, yeah. Obama banned offshore oil drilling in almost the entire U.S. Arctic and a large chunk of the Atlantic coast. And he made the announcement um at the same time as the Prime Minister of Canada announced that he was removing the entire Canadian Arctic from offshore oil and gas drilling. Now, whereas the Canadian ban will be up for review in five years, the U.S. ban was done under presidential authority that allows for a permanent ban that can't be undone by another president. It's not an executive order. Instead, it's authority that's similar to that, but even better than that, um, under which presidents establish national monuments. Um, This is authority granted specifically um, on offshore, uh, on the the portion of our continental uh, offshore waters that are under federal control with which the president can pretty much do what he wants to do. Now, Congress could write legislation or change legislation to undo this ban if it, you know, and that would involve a fight, but President Trump cannot simply overturn this, whereas he could uh, with something more like an executive order. Right, right. Which, and, and sadly, we're expecting in his first days in office him to do just that. Take. Uh, you know, uh, I guess a, a knife to President Obama's executive orders and try to undo as many of them as he can. So this is this is good. Um, so this this, this, good. this legislation goes back to 1953, and it, it it it's pretty sturdy. So it's great that he's doing this. Is there any reason he didn't um, come out with something definitive like this before now? 
Yeah, he wasn't about to come out of office. I mean, yeah. you know, this is not an easy thing to do. He just took a huge chunk of the you know, very, very critical habitat area that's critical to the, the communities uh, that live on the coast, in the Arctic, on the Atlantic, um, an area over which local coastal residents, Native Alaskans, environmentalists, activists, climate activists have been fighting for years, and he took it off the table. And that's a huge, a huge thing to do. Um, something over which I'm sure um, he, you know, battled mightily with the oil industry. And it's way easier to do something like that on your way out than it is when you've got, you know, eight years or sure. four years of governing to do. And so he really stuck it to the oil industry and really stuck it to Donald Trump um, and agreed to a demand that climate activists, environmentalists, um, indigenous communities, coastal communities have been asking now, it didn't go, you know, it's not everything that these groups have been asking for. So they really would have liked to have seen the entire Atlantic coast taken off the map for um, oil and gas drilling. I live in California. I would like to have seen the span applied to the Pacific coast. Right. And the Gulf coast would certainly like to have seen it applied mm -hmm. to the Gulf coast. And those are things for which, you know, we will continue to fight. Um, this is not the end of any of, of any by any long shot over trying to um, protect uh, really critical areas from oil and gas drilling. But it's a huge victory. And if, and if uh, listeners remember uh, what's now become uh, really historic um, protests against um, Shell's offshore drilling rig as it was moving into Seattle. Oh, yeah. And, uh, All the kayakers, the right? Arctic, the kayakers. The yeah. So kai that focus was an attempt to stop Shell from drilling in the Arctic. And that succeeded in stopping Shell from drilling in the Arctic. I actually followed that rig all the way up to the Arctic coast to the tip of the Alaskan Arctic when it arrived um, off of Wainwright, Alaska, which is this tiny Inupiaq um, village on the upper northernmost tip of, the, of, the, um, of Alaska. And... Um, and then Shell had to wrap up and go home because it wasn't permitted to continue drilling. And now no oil company can drill um, in the almost all of the U.S. Arctic and the Canadian Arctic. And that's, that's you amazing. Know, a huge victory for people who have fought very hard for, for this outcome. Yeah, that is. And President Obama. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say that's really great. I, I, I'll, we'll take victories yeah. of this sort whenever we can get them. Yeah. Well, I mean, and what, and what Obama did was basically as much as he could as president in terms of locking this in. So because he did not make it an executive order, um, like I said, that makes it hopefully Trump-proof. And then that's the most that he could have done through his presidential authority in terms of locking in this ban in the areas where he banned drilling. And now it would require an act of Congress to overturn it. Good. So, uh, well, so we got that going for us. Antonio <laughs> Yuhas is with us. Unfortunately, the, you know, we have to celebrate the small wonders, the small miracles like this, because uh, while it's true, we don't know exactly what Trump's policies are going to be because he doesn't seem to have any. He He's every way the wind blows. But what we do know along the lines of energy and the environment 
uh, is pretty scary. The, he is nominated to be Secretary of Energy, Rick Perry, who famously, in the presidential debate, that was the third agency that he wants to do away with that he couldn't even remember. And Trump makes him Secretary of Energy, the department that he wanted to abolish, that he couldn't even remember. I mean, this to me is so disturbing. It's almost like he's giving America the middle finger, saying, yeah, you got these departments. I will put the one person in charge of each of these agencies who wants to do away with it. Um, it seems like he's done that on every turn. Well, you've, uh, so I disagree that Trump did not have clear policies. I wrote another piece for Rolling Stone before the election entitled um, Trump's energy policies would be a disaster. And uh, they are. Mm-hmm. And will be, I think in the in the sector of energy in particular and fossil fuels, Um, Trump had a a long list of advisors, all of whom had very clear policies and all of whom are now being put in positions of great authority or nominated. They haven't been confirmed uh, to positions of great authority, including a secretary of state, the CEO of Exxon Mobil. Um, As you say, um, you know, we have an energy secretary, Rick Perry, who said that he would like to abolish the Department of Energy. With Scott Pruitt, we have a Secretary of the Environment who pledged to eliminate the Environmental Protection Agency. At Commerce, we have Wilbur Ross, who Mm. made his fortune in coal and oil, Um, and the list goes on and on and on. He has a cabinet of climate denialists and a cabinet um, fully committed to oil and gas development, and that is terrifying, Uh, truly terrifying. You know, with each one of these appointments, you know, I, I just couldn't quite believe it, but I would have to say the one that really has floored me is the CEO of ExxonMobil as, as Secretary, Secretary of State. State. It it really yeah. is stunning, and and it seemed like you know the names he was floating, um, each one was was ma- was like floated out there to make us feel not so bad about. You know, the ones that were reprehensible (laughs) to begin with, but at least, well, Mitt Romney wouldn't be as bad as Rex Tillerson uh, making us, you know, but but we get Rex Tillerson, which is unreal. Now, do you think um, there's a there's a complication here because all the cabinet positions do have to uh, be confirmed by the Senate, but the Democrats... Mm -hmm in the last Congress because they could get nobody confirmed because the Republicans put up that wall of obstruction. They changed the filibuster rules. So now all Trump needs is 51 votes to, to clear these people. That's right. So basically the Democrats are going to have to stand united and three Republicans will have to come over in order to stop any of these nominations. And that's, Possible, and particularly with Tillerson, there is a lot of uh, opposition, uh, including among Republicans, particularly to um, Tillerson's deep ties to Russia, and that's because of a, a huge deal that he negotiated for um, exploration in the Russian Arctic. So all of this comes back to the Arctic. Uh, a huge exploration deal, partnering with the state-controlled oil company Rosneft where ExxonMobil would have access to this huge supply of oil in the Russian Arctic. They were just about to get ready to Mm. go after this oil when Obama put in place sanctions against Russia, which suddenly turned all of this, made all of this oil out of bounds to Exxon. 
And uh, Tillerson lobbied Obama personally in the White House, trying to get him to overturn these sanctions. That did not succeed. And now, you know, one can assume that as Secretary of State, he will hope to uh, pursue those that Russian deal and um, get ExxonMobil that access it wants to the Russian Arctic. And that's just one you know, sort of piece of the, the puzzle of what he'd be after as, ex, uh, um, as Secretary of State. And there is opposition uh, among Republicans against that nomination. So all of these nominations are, at a minimum, going to get a public hearing. Oh, so yeah. there still is you know, an opportunity to have all of the concerns that we have about these people and what they would do brought into public light. And I would say, you know, I don't think that what Trump is trying to do is, uh, you know, sort of eliminate the U.S. government from within. I think what he is trying to do is use the U.S. government to make his business partners rich and put people into place who will change government policy to that end. And so that includes the government doing all of the things that it does that's good for business, and he wants to keep those agencies doing those things, particular businesses, and he wants to eliminate the ability of the government to um, stop his friends from making money. And so I think these are um, policy objectives that, that that were clear before the election and are playing out clearly now as well, and particularly in the oil and gas sector. Yeah, and and actually, you know, we had this with W, but I think on a much smaller scale, because, uh, and I could be totally wrong here, please, you know better than I do, but it seems like W was a, sort of a minor player as compared to Trump, or maybe Trump just builds himself up to be the bigger guy, but, but Trump, I mean, uh, uh, W seemed to me all he wanted to do was enrich his oil friends. Um, this just seems to be that on I mean, steroids. Yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 hard to compare the the two administrations. Although we, obviously we have to, um, the Trump and the, the Bush administration was unique um, in that, or compared to the Trump administration, the Bush administration had a very clear ideological perspective, and people who came into that administration had worked together for decades in government and in private business, and they had tried for decades to basically build American empire. And one of the goals of that was making oil companies rich and making themselves rich, and it was certainly guided with an oil agenda, but it was part of this really cohesive um, imperial strategy, which they very clearly articulated in, you know, in policy documents and before they were before they came into office, the Trump folks don't really have a unifying ideology other than corporate their own corporate profits and um, getting those profits wherever they can, and perhaps a very strong um, dislike of Iran and Muslims mm-hmm. um, and um, Iran in one category and Muslims in another. Other than that, there is not a unifying ideology. And and the combination of so many uh, historic number of of military leaders, generals who will be in this administration and and corporate executives. And just to be clear, we've had corporate executives in the White House before. But if you look, perhaps, with a comparison to Dick Cheney, Cheney had way more 
experience in government right. than he did at the head of Halliburton. Mm-hmm. Um, ExxonMobil Tillerson has spent his entire life, his entire professional life, his entire adult yeah. life at ExxonMobil. That, right. That's the only company he's ever worked for. Yeah. Which is very typical for Exxon, their mm-hmm. their lifers. But but when you put these pieces together, corporate executives uh, and the military, it's most akin to fascism, and uh, that is different. <laughs> and that is very scary. Yeah, it, it's it's truly truly frightening. Um, and there are so, there are so many. Uh, fascism red flags in everything that Trump is doing uh, that, um, uh, you know, it it is cause for concern and everybody needs to just be informed and be aware of what's going on so we can fight back. Uh, Antonio, you has, I'd be remiss if I had you on the line and didn't ask about uh, what went on at Standing Rock. I know on your website, antoniojuhas.net, and I'll put a link up, you've got a number of articles about Standing Rock. Um, uh, you know, it seems like, yeah, the good guys, we won a victory. Um, do we? But on this one, we have no guarantees. There's nothing that can't be turned around. Um, what's happening there now? How are the people there feeling today? Yeah, I mean, this is quite different, and I'm not there now, although I have reported uh, from there several times over the last several months. Um, so there was a very important decision, again, after you know years of organizing, including the largest uh, coming together in 100 years of um, U.S. Native American tribes in opposition to the pipeline being built. Uh, just outside of the Standing Rock Reservation, the Dakota Access Pipeline. And um, as a result of all of that, the Army decided that the company had not done an appropriate um, full environmental impact statement looking at what the impact would be to pass this pipeline under the Missouri River and ordered a halt to uh, any construction that would go under the river and also... um, required it to look at alternative uh, alternative directions for which the pipeline would go. And that halted the construction of the pipeline because the only thing that was left of the pipeline was passing under the Missouri River. And that is a huge success, and it is what the um, tribes, the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, had asked for. Uh, and, and so that was a big victory. However, that um, is something that could easily be changed under the Trump administration. And the Trump administration has so many direct ties to this company. Uh, I could spend the next half an hour listing them out, including Donald Trump himself having direct investments in Energy Transfer Partners, the company that's building the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, And Rick Perry, who you mentioned earlier, who sits on the board of Energy Transfer Partners, which is the company building the pipeline. And both of them, both men have received a great deal of money from this company as well. Um, and they're pretty clear uh, within this administration that it will try to move immediately forward with completing the pipeline. That said, that would mean that the Trump administration would have to say basically something that the Army decided a month ago we are going to disagree with and undo, and that will certainly be fought in court. And the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe has said we will take them to court, and it will certainly be heard in court, so this isn't something that would happen tomorrow. Um, this will take some time. And because of this delay, um, 
activists have been targeting the financing of this pipeline because banks like Wells Fargo have been are huge financiers of the project. And just a couple of days ago, Jane Fonda, on her 79th birthday, celebrated her birthday by pulling all of her money out of Wells Fargo Bank in protest of the pipeline. Wow. And I imagine that's a fair amount of money. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so the pipeline was expecting $2 billion by the end of the year from two companies, Enbridge and Marathon, who have just recently announced that they're going to wait to see if they're going to put that money in, and they're going to wait until March. And that's a huge loss to the pipeline that really needs the money, the company. Mm-hmm. And what it says is that these oil companies don't think that Trump is simply going to be able to, with a stroke of a pen, move this forward. Otherwise, they would have put their cash in. Instead, they're waiting and seeing. And that this financial difficulty could be the undoing of the pipeline because the company may simply not have enough money to wait out uh, the completion of the pipeline, and that could end up killing it. Well, that that's good news. That's good to hear. But yeah. I, but you know, <laughs> let me play devil's advocate for a second. I, I saw a map not too long ago I, online somewhere of all of these pipelines that are every. I mean, th- this is one pipeline out of how many? And it, and this one we can hopefully prevent. Um, but what's to stop another one from popping up tomorrow? I mean, they're everywhere, aren't they? It could stop another one from popping up because this is a new. This is a new focus mm-hmm. of activism, which is the, addressing the transport of oil products, not just their exploration, not just their production, not just their refining, but looking at transport. And that's looked at trains and pipelines and ships and all the ways that oil is moved. And the communities who have for you know 150 years had to suffer the consequences of being in the places where pipelines have spilled and ruptures and ruptured and trains have exploded and ships have, you know, let's talk about Exxon. Let's all remember the Valdez because ships have run ashore and spilled oil. Now other people are saying, yeah, you're right. This is a problem and we need to look at this too. And we're going to help those communities as they struggle to stop pipelines. And this is a new mode of sort of shared concern. Um, and the first success of which was the Keystone big success with the Keystone Pipeline, and now this may be the next big uh, success from this front, which is the Dakota Access Pipeline, and that is the start of a, of a trend, um, and that's a trend that those communities that have had to deal with uh, the consequences of pipelines and, and trains and ships running through their communities and trucks um, carrying these products are very happy that the rest of the you know, country and world have woken up to. So, um Yes, there are many pipelines and even energy transfer partners. The company moving forward, the the company trying to build the Dakota Access Pipeline has another pipeline it's trying to build in Louisiana, and a local group there trying to stop that pipeline. Um, There are many more uh, that they hope to build and many existing pipelines that need that um, need to be addressed because they're old and they they rupture and they have problems. Right. Um, But this is you know, hopefully the sign of, as we look at the whole breadth of consequences of the way, uh, of the harms done in the way that we consume energy right now, uh, this is one of them that definitely need to continue to be addressed. 
which is how we transport the product. As right. Well. And did I, have, did I read correctly that for the first time, the cost of solar energy here in the U.S. is lower than fossil fuels? Yeah, you know, I, I am an expert more in the, um, the you know, the fossil fuel stuff, side right. and less the alternative energy side, but I have heard that as well. Yeah. Um, that now we've basically crossed into a new era where solar energy um, is is less expensive than fossil fuels or less expensive than oil. And that's, yeah, a huge, that's a huge, huge. important shift. And, and I live in Florida where the people of Florida actually unbelievably saw through a um, a devious campaign, a solar campaign that was worded uh, deceptively, go figure, to make people think they were voting for the right to have solar power when, in essence, they were trying to keep us, as they have for, you know, this far, so far, uh, keep us from having access to, you know, uh, affordable solar energy, to putting panels on our roofs. They were trying to, um, I think, prolong that and, and uh, you know, got to say, finally, the people of Florida did it right and they saw through it and voted that amendment down. So maybe, mm. you know, maybe the Sunshine State will eventually get solar power. <laughs> Go figure. Anyway. Go and, figure. Yeah. Antonia Yuhas, <laughs> thank you so much for your great work and for chatting with me during this holiday week. I know it's a time people are scattered and going off in their own directions. I really appreciate your time today. And Happy New Year. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Happy New Year. I'll link to Antonia's Rolling Stone piece from bradblog.com, where today's show will also be posted. And with that, you can stick a fork in this one, because we're done. Brad and Desi will continue their vacation a little longer. Angie Coiro will be here filling in next time. As for me, I'm returning to my regular home at nicolesandler.com, where you can always find my podcast or the live show Tuesdays through Fridays, 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern. Thanks to Brad and Desi for entrusting me with their show and to you for listening. Until next time, I'm Nicole Sandler, echoing Brad Friedman when I say, good luck, world. We're going to need it. <laughs>